Well, good evening. It's been a real pleasure to be practicing with you all today, and I'm just really uh, struck by the the general sense of diligence and engagement that there's been, and a remarkably kind of a remarkable sense of stillness, even in this in this room. And I know it's not it's not easy. Uh, to be doing this practice and I hope at least that everybody has experienced at least one mindful breath in the course of the day maybe more than one and maybe that some of them have even been quite relaxing and enjoyable and we can tend to you know judge our, our practice on how it's going very much by this habit of looking at the the half full, the half empty piece of the glass, but just to to really acknowledge, you know, the the moments that we have been the, that we have been present, maybe that we've stayed present in the face of difficulties, also the moments of ease that we might have enjoyed, and uh, really celebrating the effort and also the way that your effort supports supports everyone else when you just show up, you know, whether you feel like it or not in the moment it's really valuable and there have been a few questions uh, in notes and uh, which we will respond to in due course but also just to say that from tomorrow we'll we'll start meeting with you in smaller groups so we'll have a chance to hear how it's going for you and uh, I'm looking forward to that I was reflecting that uh, the, there's a, the Buddha was famous for having certain psychic powers and there's one that I'm particularly envious of and I think anyone who's ever been in any capacity as a teacher would probably really envy and that's that he, he knew apparently exactly what was needed by each person at a particular time to kind of help them move forward in their practice so he could kind of read read people's minds and know exactly what it would be most helpful to say and I'm really sorry to announce that I don't have <laughs> I don't have this psychic power much as I would love to and I have so I've been finding myself in a little bit of a dilemma as to uh, you know, wanting to give more context to this this sutta, this discourse, this teaching that we're basing the retreat on, um, but not knowing what's going to be the most helpful way to do that necessarily, because we can we can pick things up in ways that are inspiring, you know, um, encouraging, and we can also pick that pick things up in ways that. Uh, are less helpful to us and particularly the whole territory of the suttas and the early discourses it's such a, a different world and for some people that's a really rich and inspiring uh, interesting place to go and for other people it can feel a little bit alienating and off-putting um, and so just to be really um you know, it, it, with anything that I share this evening, so I'm going to share uh, a few a few things that I, I find interesting and uh, inspiring and helpful. And some of them will probably speak to you, and others might not. And please just take the pieces that are useful to you, and you know, let the others go. 
So just, just reflecting, you know, why are we even talking about this practice of mindfulness of breathing, uh, as was uh, described by the Buddha two and 2,600 years ago? And it's kind of remarkable that, that consecutive generations have fallen in love with a practice of just uh, being, simply being with one's breath, with awareness. And this is manifested in different ways in different Buddhist cultures, but also I think probably in many other traditions uh, around the world, spiritual traditions or wisdom traditions. There's this kind of recognition of the value, this real value of uh, tuning into the breath and the simplicity of that and to presence as a route into to learning and understanding It's intrinsically healing for the body and and healing for the mind. And I guess in that way, in some ways, the way that the Buddha taught it was there was a slight departure perhaps from from the the teachers that he had also studied breath practices with before, in that he really he really saw it as a not just as a calming practice, but also um, a practice that that led to wisdom, that led to insight. Um, that the the breath just this 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 enterprise of being with the breath starts to reveal so much about about life to us so as we practice this it's really in the service not just of becoming an expert in calming ourselves down but of actually um, allowing the the mind's natural wisdom to develop and also to say that it was really taught in the context of the, the, the Buddha said that the, the reason that he taught, he taught only two things. He taught suffering and the end of suffering. And that, if you, if you elaborate it into four things, becomes the four noble truths of suffering. It's the arising of suffering, uh, the ending of suffering, and the way to the ending of suffering. But, and he said that this was like this teaching on this this enterprise of understanding and freeing the heart from suffering was like the elephant's footprint if, when you compare the elephant's footprint to the footprint of any other animal in the jungle the the small any other footprint could be encompassed within the elephant's footprint and this teaching on on anapanasati actually is one of those teachings that falls within the elephant's footprint can be really helpful to remember the kind of reason that we're doing the, what we're doing so that we don't engage with it in a way that's kind of clobbering ourselves and uh, creating suffering rather than picking it up in a way that is uh, with this compassionate intention, this intention that actually we're using this as a vehicle for alleviating suffering and if we're picking up picking it up in another way then there's something that needs to be adjusted in our in our attitude perhaps so i want to take us back to to the world of the suttas suttas is the pali word for discourse um, which is the closest we have to what was actually spoken by the buddha as jenny was explaining last night and I'm just curious about how many people in this room put your will you put your hand up if you've if you've read suttas before 
Okay, okay, so a reasonable number, but there may be two-thirds of people have not have not read the suttas before. And so they can be they can be um, a little bit strange to our modern uh, eyes and ears because uh, they were obviously they were do, in a, uh, spoken in a very different uh, social context and so on. And also they were they were oral teachings that were um, meant to be recited and remembered. So they were they were. Uh, sometimes they're, they, they're very sort of formulaic, so quite repetitive often, and uh, and expressed in a way that was supposed to be easy to recite and remember. So we get lots of things with lots of lists with numbers of seven this and six that and five that, which can can feel dry and strange to to uh, to us. But actually, it's a really useful device when you're trying to remember things, and hence we have these. 16 steps and four, four tetrads. Tetrad just means a group of four that we've been talking about. So, you know, for some of us, that's, they, they're really interesting. Some of us, it's less appealing. But for me, I, I really like this possibility of trying to uh, get myself back in, in my imagination into the world and the time of the Buddha and to kind of step as close I can into his thought world. And that's kind of a mystery because there are statements made and then there may be explanations in later texts about what that all means. But that's just somebody, you know, 500 or 700 or 1,000 years later who said that this is what it all means. We don't know. And to me, that's something that's quite, something quite exciting about that because it, it gives me a sense of freedom to actually... Well, I can look at this and say, OK, well, what does that mean to me? You know, how, how can I pick that up in a way that's that's useful to me so when I turn back and I look at this this particular teaching and also the, the kind of um, story the context with what, what within which it's embedded that's kind of how I want to how I want to go and this teaching on mindfulness of breathing it, it it's repeated in many different places in the suttas because the Buddha recommended it to so many different people on so many different occasions so, for example, uh, one of his students was his young son, and he taught this as a practice to his own son, who generally gets offered fairly um, kind of sim- simple, accessible practices. And he also said that it's what he practiced himself, both before his awakening, it's what he was practicing on the famous night under the Bodhi tree when he had his deep liberating insights and it's also what he practiced subsequently when he was on retreat because he said it's a practice that leads to insight but it also provides us with a pleasant abiding here and now so even uh, I think he said that uh, that when he practiced it he found that his body wasn't was not stressed his eyes weren't strained and his mind was at ease through non-attachment and just, you know, that the sense of, okay, there's some peace and well-being just by abiding with my breath. And that's still, um, still a, a place where an awakened mind wants to hang out. So it comes up in lots of different places in the, in the Pali Canon, but there's the particular 
um, discourse, which is called the Discourse on, on Mindfulness of Breathing, um, which is in the, the middle-length discourses. And the middle-length discourses are, are quite fun because they, they're the ones that give us a sort of backstory and a context for where, where this was happening and who was there and what the situation was where this was taught. So I just wanted to share a little about um, that in the context of the, the, the Anapanasati Sutta, the Sutra on Mindfulness with Breathing. So the way that it's uh, the way that it's recorded in these middle-length discourses is that uh, it was at the end of the the rains retreat, and the rains retreat was when all the monastics went into retreat. They stopped wandering in, and and lived in one place for three months during the rainy season in ancient India, and particularly on the nights of the new and full moons, these were, these were considered. Uh, holy and auspicious nights, they would gather together and uh, recite their training rules and also listen to teachings and share conversations on Dharma. And this was um, in, a, in one of the cities where, uh, one of the prosperous cities in, in ancient India, where several wealthy locals had offered parks where the Buddha and his disciples used to used to live and so the buddha and a large number of monks and and uh, disciples of his were living in this particular park on the full moon night at the end of the rains retreat and and there were all sorts of different groups of monks there probably were hundreds of them living in this place and there were groups of monks who'd been practicing for a long time and new monks and they were teaching one another in small groups and things were going really well. So they had a really diligent time of practice, just like we have today. And the Buddha said, I'm really pleased with how everyone's doing and there's so much um, good progress happening. I'm going to stay here for another month and uh, you know, encourage you to keep on practicing together. And then lots of people heard that, oh, the Buddha's staying for another month. And so more and more monks and probably nuns and lay disciples and things gathered together carried on practicing for another month and then the next full moon there was another big gathering in this park and you can imagine the quiet of a of a park in the in the cool of the evening full moon ancient india and all the great and the good of the buddha's disciples were gathered there so some of his famous enlightened disciples are described by name and then also all these monks of, and meditators of different levels of experience. So the suttas always talk about monks, but in my mind I read you know, dedicated practitioners. I'm absolutely sure that there were plenty of uh, nuns, lay people, lay women, all there. It's just that the suttas talk about monks. But anyway, we're just referring to people who are seriously interested in practice and they were sitting there uh, in in silence practicing together so one of the famous things about huge gatherings of practitioners at the time of the buddha their stories of people kind of not quite believing that so many people could sit together so quietly and wondering whether there was an ambush about to take place or something was really, you know, that apparently you could have hundreds of people there and you could hear a pin drop because everybody was just sitting so quietly, um, so expectantly, so peacefully. <clears throat> 
So in this assembly, then the Buddha uh, looked out over all this, all the silent uh, meditators and students, and he said, "This is a really, um, really wonderful assembly, a wonderful gathering of beings in this." In this assembly, there's no idle chatter. It's free of idle chatter. And this, is a, this assembly consists of heartwood, of the best of, the best of people. This assembly is worthy of respect, worthy of offerings, and is a, is a great field of blessings in the world. And it would be worth travelling a long way to see an assembly like this. So he's really pleased with the people there. You can imagine sitting there with the Buddha, your teacher, and he's, he's really uh, happy and delighted with your practice and how you're doing. And these people had such great faith in them. You can imagine there's this sort of real sense of um, ease and well-being that's uh, spreading through the crowd. So he, he heaps praise on the assembly and then, um, and then he says, well, why, why is this so? He says, because in this, in, this, in this park, in this assembly, there are people who have um, fully realized my teaching. There are enlightened, enlightened beings who've completely freed their mind from any kind of um, afflictive habits or tendencies. So then we can hear this and we can think, oh my goodness, Christ, that's not us. You know, This teaching was offered to these really advanced practitioners. But the way he then goes on to list all the other categories of people there, and it's, it's really clear that there are, there are people also in this assembly whose practice is still a work in progress. And groups of monks, he says, that are practicing different ones of, of the practices that he's taught. There are monks who are practicing loving kindness. There are monks who are contemplating the Four Noble Truths. There are people who are reflecting, contemplating impermanence and so on. Many different um, practices that he's taught. But what he's praising is the fact that these people are really committed, diligent uh, serious at least this is how I like to understand it and 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 that they're worthy of respect and for me I really like to to reflect on that to to have that encourage me to invite an attitude of self-respect and respect for the the kind of effort that we're making because in order to nurture the goodness and the wisdom in ourselves, that, that we have to, we have to um, acknowledge that which is already present in our life. So, you know, just as I was saying flippantly, well, acknowledge the number of mindful breaths you've had today. And not, the, not the amount of time where you think, I've really not been getting this, or so on. You know, we, we're, none of us are perfect in our practice, but we all have moments of real... Um, sincerity and a kind of innocence I think just the fact that you're willing to put yourself here and make yourself available to see what you, you unfolds on a retreat like this there's a real um, sincerity of heart there and so just to, to kind of um, feel acknowledged or met in that which is you know has in your noblest aspirations 
through this practice. And this is the, the space into which the Buddha liked to speak. And just having that sense of we put ourselves back imaginatively into that time and place of, of really feeling in the presence of deep wisdom and deep love, of deep compassion. So the Buddha's disciples would call him the Blessed One. So the sense that they, they might be listening on that occasion with a lot, of, a lot of faith, a lot of peace, a lot of happiness in the heart. And also to recognize that there were people at all sorts of stages of development in the path. And what did he choose to then teach on that evening? He said, you know, listen, you're doing all these wonderful practices and I'm going to tell you about this practice that is of great benefit and great fruit for you all. And then he delivered this discourse on the 16 steps. And I'm going to read them in a moment. And one of the things that I find... um, a teaching I've always found really helpful from my teacher's teacher, Ajahn Chah, who was a um, very much loved Thai monk of the last century. He he said, listen to the teachings with your heart and not with your ears. We we need to receive these with our with our heart, with our intuition. We can overthink things sometimes. We can we can overanalyze. So as I read this, and you can just sit and be with your breathing, and as I read the 16 steps of the Anapanasati Sutta, just listen, listen to it with your heart and not with your ears. So this is what the Buddha offered. There's the 16 steps of training. So he said, mindfulness with breathing that one has developed and cultivated is of great fruit and great benefit. And how, monks, is mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it's of great fruit and great benefit? The meditator, having gone to the forest, to the shade of a tree, or to an empty building, sits down with legs folded crosswise, body held erect, and sets mindfulness to the fore. Always mindful, one breathes in. Mindful, one breathes out. While breathing in long, one clearly knows I breathe in long. While breathing out long, one clearly knows I breathe out long. While breathing in short, one clearly knows I breathe in short. While breathing out short, one clearly knows I breathe out short. One trains thus. I breathe in sensitive to the whole body. One trains thus. I breathe out sensitive to the whole body. One trains thus. I breathe in calming the bodily activity. I breathe out, calming the bodily activity. One trains thus. I breathe in, sensitive to joy. I breathe out, sensitive to joy. One trains thus. I breathe in, sensitive to contentment. I 
I breathe out sensitive to contentment. One trains thus. I breathe in sensitive to the mental activity. I breathe out sensitive to mental activity. One trains thus. I breathe in calming mental activity. I breathe out calming mental activity. One trains thus. I breathe in sensitive to the mind. I breathe out sensitive to the mind. One trains thus. I breathe in gladdening the mind. I breathe out gladdening the mind. One trains thus. I breathe in composing the mind. I breathe out composing the mind. One trains thus. I breathe in freeing the mind. I breathe out freeing the mind. One trains thus. I breathe in contemplating impermanence. I breathe out contemplating impermanence. I breathe in contemplating dispassion. I breathe out contemplating dispassion. I breathe in contemplating cessation. I breathe out contemplating cessation. I breathe in contemplating letting go. I breathe out contemplating letting go. And that is how mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated so that it is of great fruit and great benefit. So what does each step mean? <laughs> and there's no, you know, it can be very difficult to decide on a particular translation to adopt and nothing is perfect. So these are just seeds to drop in that maybe there's a particular phrase that, you know, some of them may be mysterious, even slightly unappealing on first look, or there may be something that just uh, lands and you think, oh yeah, that, that really, that draws me. Uh, for me, the sense of gladdening the mind for a long time has been, I breathe in gladdening the mind, I breathe out gladdening the mind. What does that feel like? What does that mean? You know, that, that draws me. So we can't put it all into words or pin it down, and the mind wants to do that. And we will be we will be unpacking these steps over the next few days. So hopefully, the more the more mystifying of them, there'll be some more sense of clarity by the end of the retreat. But if you want an absolute definitive answer to what actually is this, you might be disappointed. So sometimes this teaching has been described as like being like a, a telegram like it's a really succinct expression of a practice and a teaching 
And at other times, it's also pointed out, it's really comprehensive. And people have written whole volumes or given whole series of talks on each of the steps and so on. Because to me, a lot of the Buddha's teaching is kind of like a hologram. You know, one, one piece implicitly includes all the rest. And the Buddha, in his, with his powers, kind of knew which piece to deliver when to which person, that it would kind of unfold the rest. We don't have that benefit, but you can trust that uh, whatever piece speaks to you, that, that can be a gateway into, into a fuller understanding. So that, that, those steps can be read as a sequence of things to discover or they can be uh, uh, seen as a description of what's simultaneously happening when we fully, calmly, mindfully pay full attention to our breath. All those things can somehow be revealed or, or unfold. And for some of us, that will happen in a particular, you know, in that order. Sometimes, you know, things happen in, in a different order. And you can see it's got this sense of, it's like, it's almost like actually if it's recited and recited and chanted, it's kind of like a lullaby. And if one remembers these teachings, I find that they, they kind of um, pop back into mind at interesting times. And you think, oh, wow, that's fascinating. That suddenly popped into my mind and it was just what I needed to think of at the moment. Um, so they, they're kind of... Um, intended to be savoured over time for the meaning to, to unfold itself. And I, fi- I find that reading teachings like that is kind of like reading a poem. It's like, you know, the, the, the meaning becomes clear in different ways over different, over different times. Or like a koan, these, these riddles in the, in the Jap- Japanese and... Uh, Korean Buddhist tradition is like it's kind of a mysterious statement and you kind of sit with it and see what it reveals to you so I think being with this teaching yes we're going to we're going to try to make some sense of it to clarify it to you know so what's this weird word dispassion or or whatever and and to kind of um explain that to it uh to clarify that a little but it's also uh, just down to each of us it's an ongoing discovery and uh, to really invite you not to get bogged down in the minutiae or things that don't make sense to you but to just um, you know explore and pick up the pieces that uh, that you can relate to that are of interest Sometimes, sometimes there's a kind of approach that thinks, "Oh well, I can't go on to the next step till I've really got the one before it." And I don't think that's very useful. It's like we kind of cycle through the whole thing, and and then you know something becomes a bit clearer, and we cycle through again, and so on. So just really encouraging you not to be intimidated by it and to make it your own exploration. And I think that you know it's interesting that there's this whole story or scenario of where this teaching was offered partly there were so many people there as it was considered so important but also to me it, it just really illustrates that 
the Buddha felt it was universally applicable, whether one was a beginner or whether one was a really uh, experienced practitioner. So the other thing I want to say about context is kind of going on a slightly slightly different tack now is um, to really emphasize this sense of, um, as I said, it's a calming and an insight practice, but this sense of um, that in the Buddha's teaching, again and again, it, it, it's shown, and you notice how this, this moved through um, steps of, of experiencing joy and gladdening the mind before it got to the really the insight practices of the, the last part of the sutta. The, the way to wisdom in, in Buddhist practice is through well-being. So the practices that the Buddha did as a, um, and during the, the years when he, he was kind of still searching involved a lot of ascetic practices and austerities. And some of this included you know, not eating, doing a lot of fasting, um, and also some of the breathing practices he did. So there was a breath practice which involved actually refraining from breathing and uh, talks about how violent winds carved up my belly and so forth. So they're, they're practices that you can do about learning to hold your breath for a long time in order to get, to, get the mind into, into particular states. And the, these, all these kinds of practices that were stressful on the mind, stressful on the body, he he realised we're actually not being terribly fruitful for him. And there's this famous moment in the, in, that's described in the suttas where he suddenly remembered a time when he was a young boy uh, watching his father ploughing the fields in the springtime. I imagine it was kind of the ancient Indian equivalent of Gaia House in May, that uh, everything was particularly delightful. And he was sitting there, you know, the sense of kind of ease and safety and contentment as his father was ploughing the field. And he had this real uh, experience of just contentment and bliss, peacefulness. And perhaps you've tasted moments like that where everything just... Everything just seems quite perfect in the moment, a moment of kind of where the world sorts of, sort of stops. And he remembered this experience and he, he thought there's something in this. This is, this is the way to, um, to peace and to clarity and understanding. It's not through putting myself through these incredibly um, kind of uh, self, self-harming kind of practices that I'm doing. And so he... He actually, st- he said, there's, I realized that there was a real sense of ease and pleasure in this. And this is a pleasure that's actually beneficial. It's a pleasure that's not harmful. It's a pleasure that's onward leading. And so he really, from that point in his own practice and the way he taught, he really encouraged people to go through the route of wholesome pleasure in their meditation practice as a way for the mind to settle and to clarify so that insight could arise. And so in our approach to um, the mindfulness with breathing practices, really to, to stress the importance of approaching this in a way that makes it easeful and even, if possible, delightful for you. 
So each of us, that's going to be slightly different. But how do we engage with attending to our breath in a way that really uh, enables the mind to rest? So one of the suggestions that I made this morning was around a practice of affectionate breathing, like we, that we lean into our breath with a sense of warmth and affection. So this actually comes from a mindful self-compassion training, and they, they kind of offer the image of the cat purring in front of the fire or a, a, a sleeping baby in a, in a cot, and you're just kind of completely infatuated, fascinated with this beautiful baby in the cot, and it's he or she is sleeping peacefully and just the way that you watch the rising and falling of the breath of the baby and there's this real sense of oh wow you know, can we relate to that uh, the feel into the process in our own experience uh, in that kind of a way and I was talking about how we, we kind of balance this pointing of the attention this directing of the attention with a sense of really savouring the experience that arises. Letting ourselves be kind of soothed, calmed, nourished by the movement of the breathing. There's a, a sense of kind of touching it with awareness or touch, touching it with... Sometimes I like the expression of mindfulness as loving awareness. No, there's a there's a warmth to it. It's not a kind of clinical observation. There's a real caring and a warmth to it. So there's a simile that gets that the Buddha uses in the in the suttas when he's talking about uh, mindfulness of breathing in the context of uh, mindfulness of the body. And he says it's like when we when we're practicing knowing the long breaths and the short breaths, it's like a wood turner working his wood on a lathe and you can imagine someone who's a, a you know I, I don't know exactly how that worked but I imagine it's a bit like a potter's wheel it's like you're turning this t- turning this thing and you're kind of making um, a really smooth curve on a piece of wood so obviously in the, that time you know wheels and things were very important so there would have been a really skilled uh, crafts, craftsman who knew how to how to turn wood, how to make a, a smooth turn in the wood. And if you think as somebody, suppose you really love to do that and you're just touching, handling, handling the wood with great care and great sensitivity and you know exactly, you've got the skill to know exactly, oh, this is, this is, I need to just angle it this much and do this much. So we can approach you know, being with the breath, handling it with that sense of care or, or sensitivity so often there are these similes about um, crafts and, and things in the suttas. So another one that many of you might know is about the, how to balance effort. And uh, the Buddha said it's like if you, if you love to play the lute or a stringed instrument, how do you tune it? Uh, if you tune it too tight, it's going to be too sharp. If you tune it too loosely, it's going to be too flat. But we listen and we resonate and we just feel, okay, I mean, I'm not very good at tuning things, but you can imagine that some of you might be musicians and just the kind of lovingness with which you would kind of attend to carefully listen in and tune your instrument to exactly the right pitch. So again, he was very good at kind of picking out the right thing for the right person. So I don't know what your thing is. Maybe there's some potters here. 
know, and that maybe you get real pleasure from from um, turning things on your wheel. And can can we be with the breath in that kind of way? A friend of mine the other week gave me a brilliant image, which this works for me, which can tell you a little bit about my my propensities. It's like it's like licking an ice cream. <laughs> yeah. So. You know, we don't really have to make an effort to apply our attention if you're having an ice cream that's really enjoyable on a hot day. So you, you lick the ice cream and then you really kind of savour the sensations. And we don't have to make an effort to remember to lick the ice cream again, do we? It's like we, we naturally gravitate back there. And it's the same with the breath. If we can find a way of being with the breath that's enjoyable, that's easeful, we're not having to make so much effort to remember, oh, I've got to get back to the breath, got to get back to the breath. It's actually, it starts to um, become a natural resting place for the mind. And this can take time to, to feel our way into, but it really is doable. And just you've got some time here and the chance to explore, well, how, how can I tend to my breath in a way that's really satisfying, calming and generative of of pleasure for me so there's pleasure but there's also there's also interest involved and i think this is you know again this the fact that this is a, a calming and an insight practice and interest is actually something that's pleasurable in itself so we haven't I don't think we've actually used the word curiosity yet in terms of how we approach this but curiosity is a really helpful attitude of mind to have in terms of how we are with 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 the breath with this moment with what is revealed because actually if the curiosity is there it doesn't even always have to be something nice that's that's happening but actually that sense of curiosity gives an, a, a feeling of aliveness and a kind of empowerment and a steadiness to the heart. And, this can, uh, and then all that the breath has can start to reveal itself to us. Because, you know, why the breath? And we've talked about this earlier, but the breath is something that is both very ordinary. You know, all those, all those monks back then, they were breathing, we're breathing now. <laughs> it's ordinary and it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's like we can't go for very long without it. Uh, it's the stuff of life itself. And the word spirit, of course, is the... the the word for breath and also it's this it's this fascinating combination of something that's voluntary and involuntary so we let it happen and been encouraging you not to manipulate it to let it happen but there's also a way in which we do and we can use the breath to calm ourselves or to, um, you know, as we stop and we take an intentional breath, sometimes that can be really useful. So I'm not saying never do anything to control your breath. It's just that this, is, this practice is not about having to breathe in a particular way or really ultimately to control it. And so the breath reveals, the breath is a natural phenomenon and it reveals so much to us about 
the ever-changing, un- uncontrollable, impersonal aspects of nature. So everything that we need to learn can be discovered through this curiosity, this observation of the breath and of how we're relating to it. So I just want to end by reading you a poem, another poem, if we think of the first teaching as a poem. And this is completely different and possibly more relatable, but it comes, I think, from somebody's practice of mindfulness of breathing. And this is what the breath is teaching them. So this is a poem called The Breath is Life's Teacher from Donna Martin. And uh, it's it's an excerpt from the poem. So once again, you can just sit comfortably and feel your own breath. And just let these words wash through you and see see what resonates. Observe me, says the breath, and learn to live effortlessly in the present moment. Feel me, says the breath, and feel the ebb and flow of life. Allow me, says the breath, and I'll sustain and nourish you, filling you with energy and cleansing you of tension and fatigue. Move with me, says the breath, and I'll invite your soul to dance. Make sounds with me, and I shall teach your soul to sing. Follow me, says the breath, and I'll lead you out to the farthest reaches of the universe and inward to the deepest parts of your inner world. Notice, says the breath, that I'm as valuable to you coming or going that every part of my cycle is as necessary as another, that after I'm released, I return again and again, that even after a long pause, moments when nothing seems to happen, eventually I'm there. Each time I come, says the breath, I'm a gift from life, And yet you release me without regret, without suffering, without fear. Notice how you take me in, invites the breath. Is it with joy, with gratitude? Do you take me in fully? Invite me into all the inner spaces of your home or carefully into just inside the door. What places in you am I not allowed to nourish? And notice, says the breath, how you release me. Do you hold me prisoner in closed up places in the body? Is my release resisted? Do you let me go reluctantly or easily? And are my waves of breath, of life, as gentle as a quiet sea, softly smoothing sandy stretches of yourself? 
or anxious, urgent, choppy waves, or the crashing tumult of a stormy sea? And can you feel me as the link between your inner and outer worlds? Feel me as life is exchange between the universe and you. The universe breathes me into you. You send me back to the universe. I'm the flow of life between every single part and the whole. Your attitude to me, says the breath, is your attitude to life. Welcome me, embrace me fully. Let me nourish you completely, then set me free. So let's just sit together quietly for a moment or two and let that settle.